Temptations. We've all got them. And if you don't think you do, maybe your temptation is pride. But are they really such a big deal? We're told by the world around us that giving in to temptations is really just like meeting a need that you have. Like a need for that terribly unhealthy chocolate ice cream that's just oozing with chocolate. Or the the need for the latest technology. Or the need to watch just another episode or four. It's harmless, isn't it? Why should anyone care if I have another chocolate ice cream? Or get a new phone? After all, I've worked hard. I deserve it. At least, maybe I tell myself that. But have you ever considered that temptation is far more serious? Maybe you've experienced the dark side of ensnaring enticements, addictions to a substance, or a scream. Did you realise that beneath the surface of temptation, there's a war going on? A spiritual battleground. Temptation is the arena in which spiritual battles are won or lost. Every moment of our everyday lives. I realise this might not be something that you think about every day. But beneath the surface of our world of our physical world, is the spiritual realm. Just as real as the chairs that you're sitting on. When you're drawn into poisonous thoughts or actions, there's a lot more going on than just the circumstances. If this is all new to you, then please tune in, stick with me as we unpack this from the Bible this morning. First, let's just clear up a few misconceptions before we come to Luke 4. Many of us have ideas about this spiritual battle or spiritual warfare, whatever you want to call it, more shaped by Hollywood or fancy fiction novels than actually by Scripture, which is our only authority. I know I spent many years believing all kinds of things never even are in the Bible. So I want to challenge you to test your assumptions of what what you think is going on and test what I'm saying this morning with what the Scripture teaches. So that's why we encourage it here at Reforming Church. Keep your Bibles open. See what we're talking about. So as we just read earlier, we're looking in Ephesians for some background here, which... I guess is the letter known as the spiritual, it's got that spiritual warfare passage that we read in chapter 6. But really, the whole of Ephesians speaks to this battle and culminates in that passage that we read earlier. The Bible exposes the unseen war between darkness and light. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Which is verse 12. On the one hand, this battle is more normal and everyday than you might think. Often when things get full on, when you're feeling like you're being pressed, hard-pressed on every side, when there's serious conflict or suffering or palpable evil at hand, you might feel more aware of a spiritual war going on. But were you aware that even your anger can be an opportunity for the devil? Ephesians 4 verse 26. When was the last time you grumbled at something or someone? Whether you said it or kept it inside? Well, like me, I'm sure you faced this battle to blame someone else in order to justify yourself. But on the other hand, the spiritual warfare is more serious and dangerous than we can even imagine. In our Western secular age, I know how unpopular it is to speak of these kinds of things. I feel the temptation to speak in a way that makes it sound more rational, scientific. Could anyone really believe in demons? Those creatures we see in cartoons, in distasteful red lycra onesies, holding a pitchfork with the little horns on their heads. Well, the truth is, you don't have to. At least not that picture. I haven't found that description anywhere in the Bible. Um, if you have, come and speak to me. We'll, we'll talk about that. I'd be interested to know where that is. But, in fact, it's, it's a good distraction by the real Satan, isn't it? Making himself out to be this comical kind of character and making fun of the idea that he exists and is active. If you, if you want to think more about this, C.S. Lewis wrote um, a couple of books, or a good book, The Screwtape Letters, which is sort of a bit of a, a parody of, um, a parable of what, what would a demon, you know, be like? What are their tactics? And um, it's, yeah, it's quite an interesting uh, little read. But Ephesians 2, verse 2 to 3, tells us there's actually three enemies, not just Satan. And that we were all once following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So first, the world the circumstances around us, the things that happen to you. This is made up of the reality around us. Secondly, the flesh, our internal motivations, fears, desires, our drive. Jesus refers to this as the overflow of the heart. What we want and love will drive us towards decisions and actions for good or for bad. And thirdly, the prince of the power of the air. 
This is the leader of these worldly ways, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This is external spiritual opposition that you face. Satan seeks to use these circumstances that are outside us and our internal desires to trap you into sin. We're not just talking make-believe fairy tales here. This is real serious stuff that impacts on all of us. So now that we've got a bit of background, that we're aware there's this spiritual war going on and that we're part of it, let's come now to Luke 4. This is an account of the historical Jesus, written down by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we may have certainty about his life, death and resurrection. This part's written for us in three stages. Three assaults from Satan upon Jesus. But by the context, we can assume it went much longer than that little section, those uh, few verses of speech. After all, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Here's where we get a bit of a glimpse behind the curtain of the physical world and get to see the spiritual battleground. This is the ultimate showdown. Satan versus Jesus. That ancient serpent, the tempter, the deceiver, that fallen angel, the devil, versus the eternal Son of God, creator of the universe, the Word made flesh, the Alpha and the Omega. I won't give away any spoilers, but you might already know who wins. What does this battle consist of here? If you look at it, you can see that it's not a a battle of strength or might or power, but a war between truth and lies, where Satan is hard at work to try and tempt Jesus. He's up to his old tricks that proved successful for him back in the Garden of Eden. And why does Satan take this temptation to Jesus now at this point in his ministry? Why not when he was a child or a teenager or before his baptism? Well, this period of fasting was Jesus' preparation for his public ministry where God kept raising the bar for what perfect obedience looks like. We read in Deuteronomy what God's standards for obedience are. Do you think the Israelites, anyone else, ever lived up to them? Not even close. Jesus grew in obedience to the whole law. To love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might and to love your neighbour as yourself. He never failed, even as the demands kept getting greater and greater. As the temptations grew, the circumstances got more intense. He kept meeting them without sin. 
So part one of this battle between Satan and Jesus. We read in verse 2 that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. Bit of an understatement, isn't it? I reckon he was. I think often we can forget that Jesus was and is human. He has a human body and experienced human desires. Just like you and me, Jesus could get hungry. Sometimes it's hard to get your head around that. The external circumstances he was in of dire hunger. At this point, the devil steps in with his first temptation, his first attack. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He was saying, if you're really God's son, you can do whatever you want. You can speak the word and it happens. Provide for yourself. The father isn't doing anything here about your food. How much longer will you last? So don't trust him. Make your own way apart from his provision. Get some bread for yourself. Well, Jesus responds to the deception with the truth from Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, saying, Man shall not live on bread alone. Is Jesus just saying we don't need to eat? We just need, just need this? Well, not at all. If we look at the context of the original quote, we can see how God did physically provide for the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert. He sent them an abundance of manna to meet their needs. The lesson there was to trust. Trust that God would provide for them, that they didn't need to go and look for help elsewhere. Satan was trying to drive a wedge of distrust between Jesus and the Father. And Jesus doesn't budge. Do we trust that God's ways are best? When your circumstances are grim, do you feel like you need to just take a moral shortcut to make ends meet? Do you feel like the only option is to give in to the temptations you face day in, day out? Are you willing to compromise God's ways to get what you want? The truth is that God knows what he's doing, even when it doesn't feel good, and even when it's far from being easy. So next, Jesus, uh, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and offered them to Jesus, if he would worship him. This one is a bit ironic, isn't it? Because in actual fact, the whole of creation is already under God's authority. To turn to Satan to give him what only God can give would mean distrust of his heavenly Father. Jesus replies with another verse from Deuteronomy. You shall only worship and serve God. There's only one rightful ruler and authority over heaven and earth and seeking to gain what we want, even good things, 
by going anywhere else is falling for Satan's snares. Are you trying to serve God according to the ways of the world? Are you trying to please him through your own works? Through man-made religion, being a better person, doing more? Trying to earn his approval? Rather than coming to him through faith in the grace of Jesus Christ? Do you look for the easy road? even when you know it won't deliver in the long run? Are your desires for comfort and entertainment opening you up to temptation? Enticement by the lies that they can give you lasting satisfaction when really only God's ways will come through. Now finally, Satan tries another tactic as he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he quotes from Psalm 91, that God will watch over him and protect his chosen one. This shows us that even Satan can quote scripture for his own purposes, can twist it. We need to get familiar with God's words so that when the deceiver comes, when God's word is twisted at us, whether in the form of our own thoughts or someone else's, we'll be able to spot that as a lie. Prove you're really God, uh, prove you're really God's son by putting him to the test, Satan says. Is that? How you know someone loves you? By testing them. This thinking actually shows your lack of love for the other. If you only accept them, whether they meet your tests. Does this mean that we should just expect and claim that God will protect us, even if we walk in opposition to him. Thinking he'll rescue us if we disobey him because he's he said it here. Well, God's love isn't so that we can, isn't just a license for our sin so we can sin more because he'll love us and forgive us more. But it's so that we would turn away from sin and turn towards him. How does Jesus respond to this third attack? With another passage, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Are you putting God to the test? Waiting until he meets your terms before you trust in him? Do you expect that God will love you? No matter what you do, no matter how you treat him. Are we assuming God's forgiveness like a free ticket to do whatever we want? Well, looking back on this contest between Jesus and the tempter, what can we learn about the strategies of Satan and the way Jesus does battle? 
Satan is the deceiver and the tempter. He's been at it since the beginning, hasn't he? Twisting God's words to suit his own plan. He lies and desires to trap you in his snares. He doesn't care whether you'll serve him willingly, ignorantly, or under compulsion. He wants to see you suffer and fall, and will do everything in his power to make that happen. How does Jesus fight back? We need to be careful to see that spiritual warfare is a truth battle. It's not a tactics game or strategy power play where we hunt down spiritual activity and cast out demons. It's the truth that destroys false arguments and lofty opinions, not force or physical power. Doesn't sound quite so much like the movies now, does it? Jesus resists the devil, and the devil flees from him. James 4 verse 7. As Jesus obeys God's law and stands on the truth, against Satan's fiery arrows, Satan doesn't even get a look in. He doesn't gain any ground at all. So, When our eyes are open to this spiritual warfare going on around us, what should we do? Should we follow Jesus' example? Learn from the Master. Imitate him. Maybe learn a few battle tips so that you can just throw out a bit of truth when Satan comes at you. Well, can... You see, though, that there's such pride in this thinking. Will you succeed against the evil one, the deceiver? If it's up to you, will you win? Against the one who was able to tempt and incite the first humans to sin, although they were totally pure and uncorrupted. You wouldn't win. If it's you versus Satan, you will lose. Satan's too powerful for you. Sin always creeps back into your life. This passage of scripture isn't primarily teaching us about what we need to do in the face of spiritual warfare. But where we need to go. Who we need to run to. We don't just need more truth in our heads. We need truth himself to fight for us. By Jesus' victory against Satan, he has obtained triumph for us. His ultimate victory wasn't in resisting that battering of temptations for 40 days, but in humble obedience as he died on the cross, taking the penalty for your sin and mine so that we might be joined to him, grafted onto that tree of life and sharing in the blessings of being one with Christ. 
So when it comes to the actual battlegrounds in your life, where do you start then? It's all good having these ideas, but what about in tomorrow, every day, this afternoon? Well, I know you have a problem with sin. I know you've been tempted and you will be tempted again. How do I know this? I'm not a mind reader. I know this because it's me too. I'm not just talking about those ads for the latest Magnum ice cream or even just temptation to sin sexually with pornography or other ways. Both of those things are certainly a form of temptation, but let's not limit it. Temptation is the allurement, enticement to sin, starting with your desires. James explains this in chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Well, where are your temptations? Maybe you're not tuned in to them. You feel like you're doing pretty well when it comes to life and spiritual battle. You haven't murdered anyone, you haven't committed adultery, haven't gone to jail. So overall, you're doing pretty good. Or maybe you're on the other end. You're hyper aware of your failings and you can't see any good. You feel like you're broken, guilty, hopeless, and everyone else has got it together. Well, God speaks to you wherever you are. Temptations are about the battle for your heart. What do you desire? What do you love most? What do you want more than Jesus? Are you a slave to comfort? And if anyone gets in the way of your couch potato time, they better watch out. Are your desires for security or possessions controlling your heart? Do you tense up at the next bill or sleep a bit easier after seeing your super bank balance or shares just growing steadily? Does someone else's opinions of you matter too much? Do you worship someone else? Or even the idea of someone else thinking well of you? Are you driven for success and achievement? If you can just get that recognition from your boss or from your work, from people out there. Whether that's in the home, in the classroom or in the office. Then those 60 hour weeks will be worth it. Well, 
let's try to get us to become aware of our struggles if you're not already. Look at the circumstances that cause you to sweat. And when are the times temptation seems to get an easy entrance into your heart? If you're still not sure, ask others around you that know you well where they can see sin taking hold, creeping in. And be prepared to take on board, to listen what they say. Might not be easy. But also look beneath the surface at your desires. What lies have taken root and are choking the fruit of Christ from growing? But for all this looking in at ourselves, for every one look at ourselves, take ten looks at Christ. Forget who said that first. I didn't come up with that. Who is Jesus in this temptation that you're facing? What does he say to you in this moment, in this situation? How do his good words shine a light on your misplaced desires? My real need isn't more of what I want, but of a heart that wants Jesus more. Well, Jesus knows what it was like to be tempted. He went through more than you or me could ever know. Not just in the desert, but as he fulfilled parts of that psalm, 91, the bits that Satan left out. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. You and I are helpless and hopeless unless Jesus has already won the war against Satan. The battle against sin and death. It's less like you're out there fighting the battle hand to hand with Satan. And more like we're all passengers on a submarine. Totally reliant on that vessel for our security, for our victory in the war. There was a war to be won. And you can thank Jesus that it wasn't up to you or me. But the battlegrounds are still active, like little spot fires still going on. Only when you see what Christ has done for you defeated the enemy as he resisted the devil in every way. Can you also resist the devil? Cling on to Jesus as he changes your desires to become more in line with his. And don't give up hope. Temptations may come or go. Or they may never go. They may continue until Christ returns or takes you home. But you won't be left to your own devices. You and your sin are no match for God's power and grace. If you are in Jesus, he has given you his spirit, the spirit who's greater than the one in the world, Satan. You will not be overcome by evil. 
God's mercies are new to you every morning. Jesus is able to sympathise with your weakness and has been tempted in every way as you are, yet he withstood, he was without sin. He knows your temptations. And he knows the way out. So let us then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have sent Jesus to do battle with Satan and to overcome him. Thank you that Jesus has crushed the serpent's head and put an end to the final victory of sin and death. Lord, we're too often blind to the spiritual battles that rage within our own hearts and around us every day. Please open our eyes to see the ways we're turning away from you and going down dangerous paths of deception. Help us cling to Jesus, knowing that you pulled us from death to life and you alone hold our lives in your hands. May we flee from temptation, resisting the devil in the power of your Holy Spirit, as you shape our desires to love you more and love the things of this world and our own selfish desires less and less. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.